Uh, so you were going through that list. Did you were you able to get through it? So yeah, just the uh, we got a little sidetracked. <laughs> uh, the, I, I had the first one. Yeah, the first one was the greet, greet, talk, and sing, and and pray if that's your verbiage for it to the plants and animals that you're harvesting. Um, and in anything else, you know, if you're harvesting rocks for flint napping or any sort of non-living thing, water, I don't know, you can do the same thing. I'm going to skip. So harvesting sites, there are a lot of sites that are still used by native people and a lot of their, a lot of legalities around state, county, federal harvesting. So knowing all of the legalities, knowing if the harvest site is one that's con used contemporarily by indigenous people. Those are super important things to know before you harvest a thing. But really one of our key important, uh, key, the key things of the ethical foraging is start with invasives. So invasives are plants that are adapted to, you know, oftentimes the soil conditions that have been already disturbed by civilization. And if you read Dow Ryan's book, Beyond the War on Invasive Species, it's an in-depth analysis of that amazing book. So there's lots of invasive species that don't have essentially natural predators to limit their population growth. So by living in a place that has been colonized through habitat loss and all these other things, there's loads of invasive species here. So I don't have to feel like I'm necessarily appropriating or affecting the native plants of an ecosystem if I just start with invasives. And every invasive plant has either a medicinal or edible quality. They just do. Um, or craft. You know, so English ivy is the thing I started working with uh, to weave baskets with, and it's also a medicine. So I don't understand. I'm not a I'm not a plant medicine person. I don't know how to make the medicine. I'm a basket weaver, <laughs> um, so I can make an, a mean English ivy basket, um, but I don't know how to make the medicine from it. But you can actually still buy medicine on the internet. You know, that's made from in Europe with English ivy. And there's multiple invasives that have been growing in my backyard. I'm a renter. So when I first got here, there's like three levels, three sort of tiers that I think on. I'm like, what are the invasive plants growing in my backyard? Are they edible already? You know, do I even need to garden? And then the second thing is like, what are native plants I can plant in here? And then the third is like classic garden vegetables. So, you know, I've got, um, I did some research. I have false celandine, or not false celandine, um, lesser celandine in my yard, which is considered a massive invasive here in Portland. And it took me a while to figure it out, but I finally saw Ray Mears episode where he roasted the roots in Ireland or something in a fire and showed how to eat them. So now I know how to eat lesser celandine and it grows like a weed. So I don't even need to tend it. Right. And then the second thing I did was I planted lots of native berries. So here, thimbleberry is comparable to blackberries, to uh, Himalayan blackberries. So if you can get an established thimbleberry patch, it's more resistant to getting overgrown with Himalayan blackberries. So I did that grew my native berries out. And then I really love uh, butternut squash. So I made a little area for butternut squash, right? So I'm like kind of utilizing all of these different things. But harvest, you know, first start with um, invasives. And the next one is know thy plant. So it's important to understand the cycles of a plant to know when is an appropriate time to harvest it or how to harvest it in a way that doesn't damage the plant or that the damage is easily repairable. So like, you know, the way a beaver evolved with willows, willows totally fine with being coppiced. They love being coppiced. They've been coppiced for millions of years by beavers, giant beavers too, you know, which were the size of like a small Volkswagen bug car, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so for, and they were around 5,000 years ago. So imagine the level of disturbance from megafauna on these plants and their relationships that they co-evolved with. So knowing when, it, when it's appropriate to harvest a plant. Another thing is to collect and disperse seeds of native plants. So if you're doing that, you know, like to just always carry your seed bag with you and, and disperse seeds. We have a thing on here about soil restoration and not using herbicide and pesticide. 
plant natives in your home garden. Do not sell or commercialize wild plants. Support local organic farms if you can. And those are kind of the main components that we have of, of foraging ethics. So it takes it beyond just an extractive relationship, but puts it in a larger context of locality, not just you know with, with the idea of supporting local organic farms. It's kind of bringing it all, bringing everything home, yeah. right? And minimizing that disturbance of your food production and maximizing its ability for regeneration. Yeah. And it all ties back to local conditions and place. Yeah. We think about what's appropriate for us and for our location and uh, utilizing what's there and being aware of what's there as opposed to looking at it like a blank slate and just saying, well, I want blackberries so i'm going to clear this out and put blackberries instead of understanding place and time that is one of the things that i i focus on a lot and try to push because i think it's really important as we start to think about especially you know not just the fact that our ecological systems are in terrible condition but also that climate change is also going to increase that pressure for species to try to figure out how to survive all what's going on which is a lot to be frank totally (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah it is quite a bit and then pairing it again with what we're talking about in terms of like indigenous uh, land management practices and how all these things kind of frame up uh, a healthy relationship with our ecology so like you're saying you know getting involved in things like seeding is that something that you feel like you're seeing people be interested and concerned about or is it something that you're like hey this is something we need to be doing and people are like yeah i agree but then it never goes further than that. I think, yeah, th- that <laughs> never really going further than that. Um, I've done a few things. I'm obsessed with perennial root vegetables as a, you know, I read The Art of Not Being Governed. Like ground nuts. Um, and, and nuts. Yeah. So I, after reading um, Ground Nuts, I, I read the, uh, the book, The Art of Not Being Governed, which is not uh, exactly a manual for how to live in a horticultural slash slash small scale agrarian autonomous you know, state free life but it's pretty close <laughs> if you if you read between the lines you can develop some sort of framework there and one of the frameworks is you know grains are really easy to steal it's how states function grains taxation that they go hand in hand and so if you have a tuber based culture agrarian culture it's much less likely to reach like state level right and and somebody did an analysis of the difference between agrarian grain based societies and agrarian tuber based societies and found that the agrarian uh grain ones were just way more violent right <laughs> and you know they're both more violent than like delayed return and immediate return hunter gatherer societies but in terms of like uh where we're at today and a transitional thing that we could go towards I'm always looking at what's the what's the lesser thing that we can start to move forward to. And so I'm kind of obsessed with the idea of roots and <laughs> root vegetables. And one of the things that one of the invasives that grows here is salsify, Spanish salsify. Yep. And I saw it growing in a abandoned lot and I just grabbed like a handful of the seeds. I took them home, threw them in a garden bed I wasn't using, and then they they grew up and then I got tons of seed that year. And then last year, grew them in a garden bed, and I only ate one in like November. And then this year, I grew them again. Hopefully, you liked it. It was really good. Yeah, I mean, it was small, but it was like a small carrot, right? But now I have this garden bed, and I have tons of seed, and I'm just like, okay, 
I should just start carrying these around with me and like poking them in the ground, like everywhere, yeah. you know? But I came up with this idea that I'm putting together a PDF with some friends called the Stellar Scrub Club. And it's basically just a funny idea of like collecting acorns and going out and planting them for fun with a group of people. And it's the whole thing is to just inspire people to start planting oak trees because in 50 years, you know, they're, and, and not even necessarily, you know, um, assisted migration of oak trees that prefer a warmer climate that are migrating up from California. If we can assist in that migration the way that jays are already doing, um, that's why it's called the Stellar Scrub Club. <laughs> because Stellar's J is Scrub J, you know, then we can then we can assist in that migration. And it's literally just something to do for fun. And unfortunately, we didn't get the get it all finished to, together this year. So it'll be something uh, a side project for next year. And I'll just post it online at some point as a downloadable free thing for people, you know, to inspire people to start doing that. But it's because of that that thing that you said of like, are people talking about this? Or are they actually doing it? You know, I'm like, what's the cultural thing that's going to make people think this is funny and fun and worth doing? Yeah. And so, you know, we were making a design in the PDF that people can print and it's got like J's, you know, standing all cool around with, you know, acorns and it, they can silk screen it or iron press it onto like a blue sheet uh, and make bandanas so they'll have like, you know, blue bandanas like they're in the Stellar Scrub Club. And, you know, just to make it like a fun, absurd sort of thing to go and do, add culture to it. Yeah. You yeah. know, that's that's the way to inspire, I think. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> I, I do a lot of s similar stuff to that. Where I live here in New England, the native willows just aren't very common anymore. So I spend a lot of time like planting willows like throughout like various hiking mm. paths. And um, mm -hmm. even like with acorns, like I, I, I like bur oaks because they're so big and have low tannins and uh, they're not native to this area, but they are working their way up. So mm -hmm. I, I plant a lot of seedlings. You can order them in bulk from various states that grow them on their nurseries and then open them up for a short period of time. Nice. So for folks that are listening, if you are interested in doing this stuff, the Missouri Conservation, whatever it is, uh, is where I get my bur oaks because they're like 60 cents a tree that way. The mm. little six inch saplings mm. versus mm -hmm. like going to a, a standard nursery where they'd be like 10 20 bucks a tree yeah wow so i definitely <laughs> recommend that if you want to get seeds or access to things that aren't native to your area i, I also do a lot with like hickories because hickories are a really mm -hmm. uh, high calorie high fat high protein nut mm -hmm. that's larger than acorns and doesn't typically have the same mast years so if you're thinking about long term planning like that's awesome it's important to think about that diversity but oaks are so totally. important because they are as far as i'm aware at least they host the most amount of native species out of any other tree in north america mm. and um like where i live again it was clear cut a bunch of times and it's like now 80 percent pines and like 20 percent other things and it's just like the, the pines don't provide anything in terms of food for most of the, the wildlife totally so then we wonder why like our ecosystems are just like a disaster mm -hmm. again circles all back to this idea of like our role within the ecology and yes we can say like we've done terrible things like clear cutting and then not providing the framework for species to come back but also we can do those things and we can do a lot more than that. We can accelerate the transition for species with climate change so that they're prepared. We don't have to be a negative factor in these relationships with the ecology. Totally. So with that in mind, we've talked a bit about giving back that reciprocity. Are there other non-consumptive ways that you really would like to see people getting more involved with ecology that could enhance it other than just like if you're going to consume something replacing it? Say that again? Uh <laughs> Sure. So um, 
like we we've been talking about this idea of like the relationships with these species that we relate to as like transactional and like okay if we're going to take some things then we have to give back this reciprocity are there other ways other than just planting new plants that we can continue to contribute and enhance the local ecology other than again just planting stuff yeah i mean there's you know not taking anything if you can do that <laughs> which is one of those those principles but also you know on a larger scale supporting indigenous prescribed burns and land management as much as possible and that kind of interaction with the place. I mean, for me, I just always think of everything that I do is causing a disturbance. And so how do I minimize my disturbance, maximize the regenerative response of an ecosystem in everything? So to me, it's kind of like everything is consumptive in a way. You know, if I'm looking at the way I'm um, doing disturbance, there's this interesting thing. I, I feel like, you know, a hundred simple things you can do to save the earth or whatever. Remember those books back in the 90s? Yeah. I remember, you know, things like think about what you want to eat before you open the refrigerator door to conserve energy, right? Most of them were about like conservation. And the thing about conservation is that it's not really conservation. It's reallocation. So, you know, I'm peeing in a urinal at a movie theater and there's a plaque above the urinal that says, this is a water-free urinal. Because of this, you just conserved 10,000 gallons of water a year. And I think to myself, that water didn't get conserved. It got reallocated to agriculture, right? Or reallocated to industry. That, that, that just freed up 10,000 more gallons to be consumed by consumption somewhere else. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so there's this, there's this individualistic relationship to consumption of like, what we do has an impact. What we consume has an impact. Every new pair of shoes, every time I empty the garbage, every time I flush the toilet, like every single thing we're doing <laughs> within civilization is like a disturbance that has no regenerative quality to it, right? And so just being able to minimize our actions as individuals is something that we can think about and actualize and could potentially make us feel better about our interactions with place. Now, at the end of the 90s, early 2000s, Derek Jensen came along and wrote an essay for Orion Magazine called Forget Shorter Showers that was basically about how putting these massive disturbances that industry has caused on individuals is a bullshit thing, right? And that like, you know, cars make up a very tiny amount of the carbon dioxide that's going in to the air and industry makes up the majority of it. So driving less, for example, is great on an individual basis, but it's actually not going to make a, a larger impact and so he was like, forget shorter showers. And for a while I was like, yeah, fuck that. I don't have to consider my personal impact when these corporations are making these huge, you know, blah, 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 blah. But at the same time, it's like, you don't, it doesn't have to be either or. You can still minimize your individual disturbance without getting, you know, too overly obsessed about it to the point where you just like feel guilty all the time or something for every single thing you do. But you can be doing both of those things, right? You can be advocating for less consumption on a, a larger scale from industry, and you can be personally making more smaller disturbances or, or minimizing the amount of disturbance that you're causing. There's just lots of ways of doing that, you know, uh, and you mentioned toilet paper earlier, you know, like the fact that we shit in fresh water and then flush it away, like the amount of energy produced in toilets. And then the fact on top of that, that sitting on a toilet the way they're designed is actually causes hemorrhoids and all these other things, you know, causes illness within the body. Like the whole system is just totally fucked up. So how do you, um, 
recapitulate or you know not recapitulate how do you just completely retrofit or or create something else right and there's a lot of different ways you can do that with any of these particular things that we do you can minimize your trash you know there's like these blogs of like people like i my year without any garbage or whatever you know and it's like how difficult it is it's impossible yeah so there's like a level of like just trying to do that on a sense that can feel better and feel like you're making a better impact even if it's on a small scale individual way. Yeah. And I think like it really comes down to like a cost benefit for individuals. Like you get those marginal gains by doing very basic things like peeing outside, like you saved a gallon and it didn't yeah. cost you anything. Like it took you five extra seconds. Exactly. You went outside instead of upstairs or whatever. And you got some fresh air, maybe if the air isn't filled with smoke from the wildfires or. Yeah, whatever, exactly. You know? <laughs> so like, you know, those, those little things we can do that make a significant impact uh, if we were to do it collectively versus like the people that go extreme and it's like, well, how much did it cost you to buy all of those things that didn't have plastic? And like how much more strain did it put on our ecological system because you didn't want to have plastic, which is readily available versus, you know, some paper that, yep. you know, had to get processed a certain way to be used the same way as a plastic or whatever. Exactly. It's not as cut and dry as those things like to present it to be. Totally. I tend to not focus on most of that stuff in terms of bigger picture systematic rewilding because most of those things are like quick fixes that individuals can do that aren't really systemic, right? And my main focus is on the theoretical systemic transformations that we can make or that we'll inevitably make. And so how to be ready for those. And when I think about rewilding, I'm not thinking about like that it's every time I look in the fridge, if I think about what I eat before it, that's rewilding, right? That's just reducing my level of disturbance and consumption as much as I can within a society that's forcing it upon us. It's not breaking free from the prison. It's just making the prison a little bit less destructive, but not more sustainable, just less destructive, right? I guess, does that answer the question? I mean, I feel like- yeah. I would, I would, I would like actually, I'm actually curious what you think about that. Uh, about uh, non-consumptive ways to enjoy totally. ecology. Yeah. You yeah. know, that's, it's one of those things that I think there's a lot of things we can do. You had mentioned like prescribed fires as being something. I, I think about like, how can we build relationships within the ecology? And like, we might think of, you know, going fishing and like having a campfire as being consumptive, but it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, you have a fire and you can spread those ashes out in places where there are strawberry patches and it will help those strawberries or, you know, whatever it might be, there's ways that we can have these uh, events where we're, we might think of ourselves as consuming, but we're not necessarily doing so. Or even as something as simple as like bird watching, where you can go and find the current state of rare birds are and things like that. And those activities help us have a better relationship with the ecology around us and become more aware of what's around us. Absolutely. You know, I, I brought up like the oak tree being like the, this tree that hosts more species than any other tree in North America. And it's like, I think 530 or something uh, native species rely on oaks. Amazing. And not just that, but there's a, a, like a lot of very specific animals and um bugs and all sorts of stuff that need oak trees to be a certain distance from each other in order to be able to use them and utilize them because of how far they can travel and because of their size. If we don't have that in our minds, like, you know, when we're talking about food systems, you know, you see like permaculture and regenerative agriculture and all these things that focus on like, how do we build food systems that are perennial and all of these things. And it's like, yes, it's great to have like no till and all of this stuff. But if there isn't a place for that local ecology that is so 
tied to very specific things that are core functions of our biome, then you're not taking care of the ecology yet. It doesn't matter if there's 500 pounds of apples that are on the ground for the bugs. Like, it's great. There are bugs that will enjoy it. Like, great. But Mm -hmm. that doesn't tackle the fundamental problem with the way that we relate with our ecology. Yeah. I mean, this relates to an interesting subject around this, this idea of carrying capacity. I'll relate it by saying that you mentioned the apples thing, like 500 pounds of apples feeding a specific bug. Like what humans are doing is niche construction, right? For ourselves on a massive scale. Like there are entire ecosystems that require the kind of burning that humans have been doing for potentially a million years that have co-evolved with the human niche of burning fire. In my Rewilding 101 classes, when we talk about this, one of my students was like, oh, I get it. Humans are like fire beavers. (laughs) I love that description. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, one of my other students was like, okay, well, I'm going to help you make a t-shirt for that. (laughs) So we'll see if that ever happens. But um, it's like this, this, um, I hate the word keystone species, but what our disturbance that we create in an environment is so impactful in the same way that a beaver creating a dam creates a wetland that creates a whole ecosystem that is reliant solely upon the beaver's existence and their and their desire or their innate ability to create a dam in the same way there are entire ecosystems that are relying upon human burning right because we've been doing it for potentially a million years you know hearths 400,000 but the the growing theory is that Homo erectus started doing fire on a on a regular basis about a million years ago. It's not fully embraced yet, but that's kind of where people are starting to go. Actually, you know what? <laughs> this makes a lot of sense. Yeah. In terms of our biology too, just in how much our biology changed, having essentially fire adapted intestines and brains, you know, that's a whole other subject. But in terms of niche construction, different subsistence strategies are different kinds of niche construction. So when we were all hunter-gatherers, that was a specific kind of niche construction or you know, pyroculture, as one of my archaeologist friends calls it. The fact that we were creating a niche with fire and with hunting and gathering and the impacts that that would have had would be very different from horticultural societies or pastoral societies and those niches that started to be constructed much later um, and in particular, agriculture, you know, and when you take agriculture out of a floodplain where it's naturally having that disturbance from flooding and you create a human imposed disturbance uh, of irrigation and tillage, you're completely altering a landscape that is not designed or, you know, designed is such a weird word. Managed. It's not adapted yeah. for that managed or, you know, geographically, that's not what is adapted to growing there. And so each of these things kind of create their own niche and within those different subsistence strategies you can have different carrying capacities based on what the consumption is of that different subsistence strategy so if you're an immediate return you know that's why i hate the term carrying capacity when we talk about population because it's totally subjective and also it usually means like maximizing the the number of humans in any ecology right so it's like human supremacist from a fundamental level of like, we need to be able to squeeze out as many people so we are at the perfect carrying capacity rather than being like, what about these other insects, right? Like, yeah, we've got 500 pounds of apples for a particular insect, but what about the ones that we don't actually interact with all that much or we're reliant upon our pyro culture, our burning culture before we created these monocultures of apple orchards? 
Hey there, it's Andy from the Corporal's Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. Yeah, and I think that all speaks to like this idea that we even understand everything or understand what the ecology is. You know, I think about like we did an episode on Satayama landscape in Japan. And when they started trying to bring back some of these traditional land management practices, species came back that had been like endangered, but they didn't come back as much as they thought because it's much more complicated than just being like, oh, we need to go and, you know, go through these coppicing fields and just chop them down because that's what we used to do. Like there, there's much more nuance to it that we don't, totally. if we don't have that lived experience that things are being missed that I think we just, we have, again, it, it comes back to this idea of like commodifying our relationship and, you know, making it TikTok approachable or whatever. Uh, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like that we, we have to do these things mm-hmm. and like, it, it's not for the experience itself. It's for like the impression of that experience. Totally. Well, and it comes back to what you said at the beginning is that it's not about going back. You know, if we just start doing what we used to do because we used to do it, not because we understand how it's actually good or bad or whatever, you know, how it promotes life or or can disturb life, then we're just going through a dogmatic practice without it actually being a restorative relationship. It's the same thing with like trying to undo domestication. <laughs> My favorite example of that is like eugenics was uh, this very popular thing among the, the, the Nazis, of course. And the Nazis were actually naturalists. Nazis were eco-fascists. You know, Hitler was a vegetarian. <laughs> and they thought it would be really cool to recreate the auroch, which is the ancestor, the wild ancestor of the domesticated cow. Uh, you, I think you wrote a paper about that, right? Or an essay? Uh, potentially. I don't know. There's a, maybe, a, maybe a couple of other people. I've, I thought I've, it was you that I'd seen it now that you I've say I've blabbed that. about this a lot, okay. probably. So that might have been it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they took a domesticated cow and they selectively bred it for the traits they thought were wild. And if you look at the, you know, um, social Darwinist perspective that wild is survival of the fittest, meaning strongest and most aggressive, what they did was they just selectively bred a cow that looked like an auroch and was really mean. (laughs) But it was still a domesticated cow, right? It wasn't wild. It was just the preconceived notion of wildness. And so if you... If you go off, if you set out to do that thing without understanding, without embracing wildness and and reframing your relationship and not trying to do that, it will probably have better results than just trying to recapitulate these um, outdated ideas of what it what it meant. It also reminds me of um, I don't know if you're familiar with Hazel, um, formerly known as Tom Ward. They're an amazing permaculture teacher here in in Oregon. They teach a class called Social Forestry. And one of their big questions at that class, which then later became a theme of the first uh, or second theme of our rewilding conference is the question, restoration to what? You know, when we talk about restoring an environment, are we talking about 10 years ago, 100 years ago, 5,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago? You know, there's like Pleistocene rewilding is a thing where they, they want to reintroduce 
or introduce megafauna from Africa to replace the, the missing disturbance on the landscape of the extinct megafauna of North America. So they want to release savanna lions and elephants like into North America to replace the disturbances that were originally created by like woolly, woolly mammoths and saber-toothed tigers and such like that. They're going to love our cornfields. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> to me, it's absurd. But at the same time, I'm like, you know what? Just throw everything at it. <laughs> but yeah, so it's like restoration to what? We can't just, you know, it's one thing to to look at older systems and understand the maintenance that they provided and then go forward with the idea of that what was working may not work now. We can give it a shot, but we don't want to get in this dogmatic practice that this was sustainable then, so it should exactly it should be exactly the same now, which is, you know, um, one of the frameworks around traditional ecological knowledge or traditional ecological management is that ecosystems have completely transformed. And so even if we start doing some of these management practices, it may or may not have the same effect, like you suggested with the management practices in Japan, you know, like the species aren't coming back to what we thought they were going to be. Um, and it could be the same things. So it's not so much um, that we're returning to specific practices of ecological management per se, as much as, again, that relationship of trying to understand and fit into our environment and being flexible and adaptable. Yeah. Fundamental skills versus uh, explicit practices. Totally. Which I think brings me back to this question of my final question, tying all of this together a little bit. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about like our relation with ecology and the role of traditional land practices and all of this stuff, as well as climate change and kind of, you know, how does this all pair together in dealing with the fact that the way we are living is slowly collapsing in front of us? And how do we move forward? How do we prepare to move forward? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the most adaptable way of living for humans is the immediate return hunter-gatherer life way. That is no longer possible. <laughs> um, so what is the most adaptive lifestyle? And I think in order to, before people start even thinking about what they can do to become adaptable, there is a level of relinquishing of control and being able to, the skill of being able to abandon something that is no longer working. And if we think that humans are innately agriculturalists or whatever, or these specific styles of, of living, if we think that that's the innateness of a human, then as those systems are failing, we're just going to keep doing the failing thing until we die. You know, I recently, I was just talking about this on Instagram. I saw a National Geographic cover this week that said, uh, you know, something like the amazing lost civilizations and like, at you know, what were they like at their height? And what treasures did they leave behind? You know, and they're talking about physical objects as treasures. This idea of a lost civilization, it's not lost like, oh, I lost my keys. Where are my keys? It's lost like they lost the battle against nature to prevail as a civilization. Yeah. Right? Like that's that's what was lost. And instead of, and, and so as a civilization that is uh, narcissistic and projects that that's actually the way that we should be living, they are looking at that as a value judgment, right? So when a civilization collapsed, they see that as a failure rather than a success. And so it's interesting when they talk about like the ancestral Puebloan societies, which allegedly, you know, quote unquote collapsed, but are still existing today in continuity. They're called the Hopi, right? And so they, when they say the treasures that they left behind, they're not like the living culture that exists today is the treasure, 
right? Yeah. Because what they did was create a resilient society when they reached a point of diminishing returns. They abandoned that way of living and transitioned to something that worked better. That's the treasure. That's the that's the real idea there. But, you know, a civilization that doesn't want to let go of itself, doesn't recognize that collapse is actually um, inevitable. And in terms of a society that overconsumes and reaches the point of diminishing returns, that to me is the treasure. So in, in terms of like, what's the first kind of thing to think about is like, how do I let go of of what I've been told, of the stories I've been told to find something else? And I I, it's easy for me to say that because I've never been attached to anything, including just being alive. <laughs> you know, maybe it's because of my, you know, intrinsic depression and, and my sort of um, constant conversation with like, should I be alive? Do I care about being alive? That I'm basically willing to just drop anything and, and um, abandon any story. I dropped out of high school when I was 16 and ran away from home to learn wilderness survival because I thought that civilization was going to collapse in like the next couple of years. And it's been... Um, you know, over 20 years now, and it hasn't fully collapsed. Of, co of course, collapse, I thought, was going to be an event back then, and now I understand it's a process. But being able to abandon the ideas that we should be living in a particular way and embrace ecology and embrace adaptation, I think the second element that I would suggest is, you were saying, is there any non-transactional thing? For me, it's hard to... <laughs> To see things in a, you know, any relational thing. When I think of a transaction, I think of just any kind of relation, like how am I interacting with something? So if it's not um, solely about consumption, it's still about, about uh, that relationship on some fundamental way. But I think about animal tracking, you know, and how animal tracking was the thing that really connected me to ecology and connected me to place because it's storytelling and it's the story of a place. So, you know, what was this animal doing? Where, why was it doing this? Where was it going? And you construct a story around this animal and how it's interacting with its environment. And it's a reflection of us ourselves because you see your own tracks and you see how we are all interacting in this place, right? And it's actually how we evolved as hunters and, and gatherers is through uh, symbolic thought. And there's no other animal on the, on the planet that can track symbols, right? Being able to see a print in the ground and know that it is connected to another animal and know what that animal is. That is a product of human thinking. That's symbolic thought. And there's no, nothing else does that. And that is in part connected to our language. It's probably a huge reason why we evolved to have language is from tracking and storytelling. It's interesting. Yeah. There's a really cool book called um, The Art of Tracking, The Origin of Science. It's like a free PDF you can download from a, a, a tracker who works with the Bushmen in South Africa. And it kind of goes through a, a lot of this stuff, like the, our brains evolved and science evolved out of our ability and storytelling evolved out of our in tandem with maybe not necessarily because of. But so in terms of like understanding our, our story and how we interact with the landscape and being able to construct stories around that, animal tracking was the thing that really brought me and connected me to a place. And then, of course, beyond that, just like actually experimenting with growing food and and foraging for food and understanding this relationship of reciprocity with each plant. Every time you learn a new plant that's edible, whether it's invasive or native or a garden vegetable, every time you learn that new, you have that new relationship, you just add one more relationship to your your bag, you know, to your basket of relationships yeah. and everyone suddenly you see them everywhere. Exactly. And it's it's adds to that level of resilience and hope and autonomy that comes with rewilding. And it's not just plants, right? Animals are a huge component of that too. 
It's just that at this point, the, the wild animals that do exist are so minimal that, um, and this is another point too that I like to make, is that rewilding also seems to be, because individualism is such a projection of, of our culture here in America, the individualism that is innate in our society gets projected onto every other type of movement. So when we think about rewilding, it's oftentimes like running away to the wilderness by myself or like prepping or doing this thing without actually recognizing that we have deep relationships with animals that we've domesticated and would be pretty, pretty shitty to just like abandon those animals in their domesticated state and not co-rewild with them, right? And help them, assist them in rewilding too. So like things like holistic management, you know, is a form, a step in the direction towards like rewilding pastoralism. Yeah. And, and so I just think about it like that too. It's not, it doesn't have to just be with plants, but also with with animals. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense now they've said it. It's never something I really thought about. Uh, but I like I think about like my own livestock and uh, I have like land race sheep and chickens that are like basically feral. And that's what I like about them is that they like mm -hmm. they're so resilient to everything because they have that totally that feralness to them that yes. makes them I think, you know, stronger and able to exist. I mean, honestly, if I let my exactly. sheep out, um, they, they'd probably live for quite a while before something hunted them down. <laughs> yeah. And like, even if you hunt, like if you hunt turkeys or whatever, it's pretty rare to see a turkey that's more than a couple years old. So mm -hmm. saying like it would only live a couple years like that, that's in the wild, probably what most animals do survive. Right. A thing that I like to say, which is that, you know, civilization and agriculture are essentially a Pandora's box that got opened 20 to 10,000 years ago. And every culture around the world has been reeling from that. And of course, you know, capitalism in Europe and its expansion uh, and oil production catalyzed this in, in much more horrible ways. But at, when societies and civilizations collapse due to the diminishing returns of an agricultural society, they often figure out how to live in a more resilient way. And so one of the things I like to study are like post-civilized or contemporary societies that do manage the land with semi-agricultural or semi-grain production. And one of them in particular is the Mayan culture in Guatemala. And one of the things that they do is they actually throw their corn seeds into the jungle. And every year they get the seeds that they're going to grow in their fields from the corn that's been growing in the jungle. Because again, it's rewilding the corn. Yeah. It's preventing it from losing its resilience and its interconnectedness to the larger ecology than if they were to just continue to selectively breed it in a monoculture, right? And so it's just like one of those things where I think there's a level of every society that's been experimenting with agriculture that reaches a point of diminishing returns and then figures out a more resilient way of doing it. I mean, think of, you know, a classic example, of course, everybody talks about is the three sisters, uh, corn, beans, and squash that the Iroquois Haudenosaunee people, uh, you know, and, and their framework around that form of agriculture. Um, and again, it's just like creating these kinship networks and understanding those interrelationships. Yeah. And I think that actually comes from trial and error and failure. And that's not necessarily failure, but trial and trial and you know, experimentation. Yeah. And understanding. So I, I feel like there's a anyway. OK, that's all I'll say. About that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, food systems are an interesting thing. I don't, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Dr. Natalie Mueller. She does a lot of research in the U.S., primarily around annual crops that were staple crops that have been uh, rewilded, mm. finding them and then trying to plant them to see like how they were harvested, mm. you know, thousands, 
500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, whatever. Totally. And it's really cool, like, these things that she's like, we found these and we can tell that they were domesticated at some point because of things like seed size and shell size and totally. things like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to harvest them, use them as a crop again because, like, like that corn, it's you don't have to do anything to it. You throw it in the ground and it's going to grow. Exactly. So it's a really interesting concept. So anyways, you know, we, we've covered a ton of stuff in this and it was really great. Uh, I know you were involved with a lot of different projects. So if you want to chat a little bit about those, let people know if they want to find your work in other places where they can do that. Cool. Yeah. Uh, the main thing I do right now is just I'm teaching, a, I teach an online class called Rewilding 101. It goes through a lot of the stuff that we chatted about today. And then, of course, uh, I've got a podcast, the Rewilding Podcast, and uh, I have a book called Rewild or Die. It's outdated. I'm actually in the process of writing the next one, but it's still good. It's still fun. It was written under uh, the moniker Urban Scout, and it was a bit of a, a sort of a iconoclast performance artist who walked around Portland in a loincloth. Um, <laughs> it became this larger project. Uh, there's also the Rewilding Conference, which will be online again this year. It's every January. We're probably just going to actually keep it online, even though it's ironic to have a Rewilding Conference online. <laughs> um, but it's because we want to connect people and make it accessible and, you know, limit air travel and things like that. It's a very small scale conference with a collection of different speakers that speak all about the kinds of things that we are all into. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll be there. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You're going to be one of the speakers this year. Yeah. Great. Uh, so that should be pretty fun. Yeah. So I think that's everything. Thanks so much for coming on. This was really great. Thanks for having me. As always, thanks so much for listening to these last two episodes. A reminder that on January 28th through the 30th, the annual North American Rewilding Conference will be going on. Go check out rewilding.com and find out what time me and Peter are both speaking. As always, this is Andy, and this is the Poor Proles Almanac.